Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I sit down with Tyler Stewart, co-founder and managing director of Greenacre Capital. Tyler's always impressed me with his ability to see trends in the market and move on it. He and his partner made such a bold move to create one of Canada's first cannabis-exclusive investment funds. In their first fund, they raised $25 million and attracted some of the top minds in finance, including Brett Wilson and others who have pioneered the cannabis space. At the end of 2018, they closed a second fund of $89 million, increasing the scope of investments they do. When you look back, it was a hugely bold move to go out and raise $25 million to invest in an industry which still wasn't legal. It was murky at best. Our discussion takes us from his early career in investment advising and investment banking then to his nearly 10 years doing institutional sales. You're gonna hear firsthand how he viewed and sold deals on the sales desk. And now, as a financier, you'll hear about how he evaluates deals and how best to pitch Greenacre and other funds or bankers. Stay tuned, this is a great interview. Tyler, how are you? I'm great, how are you doing? I'm good, it's nice to be sitting here with you. As we've been discussing, I want to talk to you about finance, the world of finance, uh, your career and what you're seeing, uh, and I think probably a great place to start is Green Acre Capital. Yeah, absolutely. So two years in, two funds. What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. It's moving moving pretty quickly for us. Um, so we launched in January of 2017. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, two funds in now. So uh, first fund was um, 25 million dollar pure cannabis focused fund. Finished deploying that in mid 18. And then in August uh, of 18, we just went out and launched a second fund. Uh, so within the next couple of weeks, we'll close off the marketing for that and we'll drive on to deploy that capital. Uh, and that's looking more like a 90 to $100 million fund. So a bit of a step. Oh, wow. First one. Yeah. That's, I think, 20 over what you guys are shooting for. Yeah, yeah. We were targeting about 60 to 75. So I think we got our timing right and the marketing happened a lot faster than we would have thought. So. Uh, we'll uh, count our blessings and move on. Yeah, I, I laugh and, you know, timing, right? I think you guys are killing it. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing, and, and I think we'll get into that. What I'm interested in, in digging into is your past experience in finance obviously brought you to Greenacre mm-hmm. uh, and informed a lot of what you did and, and a lot of what you're doing now from investment advisor to some investment banking and then ultimately institutional sales desk. Mm-hmm. For, for the audience, for CEOs out there or anybody else in the finance space, when you look at the roles that, that are there from an iBanker who's putting together the deals to the institutional sales and to the, the brokers, mm-hmm. uh, what's the relationship between those? Mm-hmm. Like how do you see it from the inside from your experience sure. of First Energy? Yeah, no, it's a good question because I think there's a lot of confusion around uh, that investment bank and that model. Uh, right. It is pretty confusing for people unless you're in it to fully understand what everyone's doing in all those roles. So 
um, you know, the traditional investment bank and, and the, the one that I spent most of my career at was, was a company called First Energy Capital, which was a boutique energy bank here in Calgary. And so the three pillars of that really were the corporate finance group, the research group, and then the sales and trading group. And so all three of those pillars worked together uh, on every deal or every file, really, um, to get things over the line. And, and so we all had different roles within that. Um, you know, right. the, the research analyst role, I think, is pretty well known. They write up research reports yep. um, for, for individual issuers as well as macro reports. Um, you know, the sales and trading role is is to essentially transact and, and, and is to go and try to get orders, whether it be a, a bought deal or, or just regular kind of trading type business, everyday trading. Um, so that was where, you know, a salesman would have to have that relationship with the portfolio manager in order to pitch those stocks. And then once he gets the order, order the traders to execute and fulfill that order. And then behind the scenes, you have the investment bankers, right? So they're the ones that are uh, really putting the hours in on, on papering these deals uh, in the case of a financing or working on the advisory side, the M&A side. So those longer files that take yep. maybe three or four months to get over the over the line and negotiating with both sides and legal and whatnot. So, so when in amongst those three pillars, yeah. and when a company comes and sits down with you, let's say they're raising $10 million, $50 million, $100 million mm-hmm. for whatever their, their initiative is, What's that process like? Yeah. So I think every firm would be slightly different, but with our firm, um, we would need a a champion from each department. So you would need a research analyst that said, yeah, uh, I like this company. I like their assets. I can pick up coverage of of them. I feel good writing a report on them. You need a banker, investment banker. Uh, that's buying in, you know, and, and is, is working this, this client. And then you need a salesman to say, yeah, well, I think we can sell that deal. So you get that papered, you give it to us, and we'll find demand for it. We'll place the stock. And that, that's, what, that's what your role was uh, on the institutional sales desk? Yeah, on the sales side, then you'd be, you know, you'd take it over from the banker once that deal was papered, and, you know, if it was a bought deal that you're working on. So then if I was, if I was leading the company, how would I... How would I corral those relationships? How how was it done best? Yeah, how's it done best is is the good question. You know, it's it's done best I think when you get firm buy in, right? So, um, you know, you have to come like it's a competitive space. You know, if I use the energy analogy, you've got um, hundreds of companies in Canada's oil patch that are essentially. Um, creating a homogenous product. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's only so many subtle differences be- between molecules, right? Like, um, so how do you stand out? How, um, you know, you need to differentiate yourself somehow. It, it, we've got two good points here. I want to drill drill down on one and then yeah. come back to the other. Yeah. To get firm buy-in, you've got those those three players in there: uh, the analyst, the banker, and the mm-hmm. the sales guy. Mm-hmm. How do you approach all of them? How do you start to work your way into to get the champions on all three sides? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that would be done internally. So, I mean, if, if you're a CEO and you have a relationship with an investment banker, I mean, that's that's your in, really. Okay. Um, and then it would be that banker's job, essentially, to um, introduce you to the, to the rest of the firm uh, and get those other champions on the other side. So, really, I think the relationships start with one of the pillars. Okay. And that champion kind of takes it forward. So as a CEO, um, you, you don't have that many touch points originally, right? Right. right. To get in, it's not as you're trying to triangulate. No. You no. come into one. 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, um, you know, I, I use the word and I will use the word differentiation a lot. Right. Right. Because I think that's pretty key. Um, you know, if, if any great investable idea, I think, has a certain element of differentiation, um, you know, it's it's a little tougher to differentiate in energy, let's say. Um, so you'd, you'd be looking at the track record of management. You know, okay. How strong are they? Um, how strong are their assets? How much growth is in their asset base? And are the investors getting this at the right price? Understanding that, and, and not to, to disregard it, but I mean, there's, there's, I think there's more to it than a strong asset base, a you know, good pedigree. Mm-hmm. In your experience, for the ones who did it right, how did they communicate to you or to the champion in the, in the office that got them to be the, the, you know, the winning horse or the, yeah. the horse that people were betting on. What did they do well? Or if you were to think of one company over any other, yeah. what did they do remarkably well? In, yeah. In you know, like execution is key, right? Um, you know, like, let's take an example of, of, um, you know, say the Montney here in Alberta or BC, you know, it's a, it's, it's one play with a lot of participants in the play and you've got, call it 12 or 15 companies that are all vying for capital despite having seemingly similar assets in the same part of the world. So now how do you differentiate? How do you do it right? Well, you execute and you execute on the small things, right? So you keep your costs down. Uh, obviously, you have a strong geophysical team that, that are drilling the best wells um, and you relay uh, guidance and and you hit that guidance and deliver on that guidance. So, mm. um, you know, when I'm looking at, at strong from weak management teams, uh, I, I look at a track record and then I look at that execution. Would that suggest that, that regardless if you guys had banked those companies at that mm-hmm. point, you were tracking and following a number of companies? And, and what did that process look like? How could a CEO keep on your radar? Yeah, absolutely. You're always following ones that the, you know, the firm has research coverage on and then ones that are on the periphery and other plays that you might, you know, care about a company that, you know, borders on. So, you know, the, the comps tables were big mm. in, in energy and they're big across industries. But that's really, I think, the best way for investors to have a snapshot of, you know, a particular segment or subsector. Uh, when you can see them all on one spreadsheet and you can see the trading multiples of it, um, then you can start making the, the comparisons and, and picking your horses off of off of that, right? Right. I, so relative I valuation that. was relative valuation was re- really important. Okay. Yeah. From that experience, and I want to shift gears after this and come over to Green Acre. Yeah. But if you were to pick one kind of memorable story. You know, one CEO or management team who stood out and just stood out from the crowd. It doesn't have to be a technology or a, uh, a resource company. Yeah. I don't know, I guess. What do you think that was from from the experience there? Yeah, yeah. You know, we picked up coverage of a of a startup um, energy service company, um, and the, you know they they had a, a a different approach to the business. They had spun out from a larger company. They were going to go after uh, the same market segment, essentially. And it struck, they stood out to me because every time they'd come into the boardroom, um, they would put their projections up and they would have a little prediction on, you know, not only their own numbers, but the industry in general and where the industry was going. And it seemed like every four or six months they came back into the boardroom to update us, you know, you could check those boxes off. 
right? Like that had happened. They had hit their numbers. Hmm. And I remember telling this CEO in front of 25 people in the boardroom, I said, like, good on you because 99% of the companies that come in to this boardroom have already operated businesses in this industry for years and they can't hit their numbers. You know, you're one of, of maybe a hundred companies that comes in here and you hit your numbers and, and you kind of do what you say you're going to do. Um, so to me, that really stands out. You know, it, it was really surprising uh, for me in, in, in the energy industry when I was in it, um, how many seasoned veterans in that business still couldn't hit a, hit a number, well, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, of course it's very, very few that can hit right. it. So, you know, and that's really shaped my thinking as far as when I look at a pitch deck now, um, I don't spend much time on their forecast at all. Okay. I, I really don't, especially in the cannabis world where I am now. Yeah. It's a startup world. These, these numbers mean that almost nothing right. Cause I know they're not going to get hit. Right. Right. Well, let, let's, uh, let's shift gears and, and move into that world. Sure. So, uh, I mean, it's obviously the, I think, probably 15 years in, in finance before that informed your move into Greenacre. And about two years ago when you started, we sat at lunch and you said, I'm starting a cannabis fund. And I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> and You're since crazy. Then, well, yeah. And, and but incredibly intelligent. It's It's been uh, a huge success, as I understand. So tell us about it. Sure. Greenacre. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would back up even before we launched um, in early 2016. Um, I, I wasn't working at the investment bank anymore. And I wasn't so confident or sure that I wanted to be in that type of an oil and gas finance role anymore. Um, wasn't ready to, to go put a suit and tie on and go work for a big bank. I think I just needed a bit of a, of a switch. And um, a friend of mine had shown me a deal uh, of a company based in Seattle. Um, and I thought, you know what? Why don't I hop on a flight and go check out this this company. Uh, I hadn't really spent a lot of time um, following the cannabis space. Um, you know, Trudeau had just come into power. Of course, we knew that was one of his his campaign promises was to legalize. Uh, so I went down and looked at this company, and it was it happened to be an edibles company that was looking for Canadian partners. And um, it wasn't the company that really um, gave me that light bulb moment, but it was a dinner that I had with some people uh, on a Friday night, uh, a, a married couple, married with three kids in their mid-40s. She's a serial entrepreneur, had, had started and exited three companies. He's a surgeon. He had performed two surgeries that day. After uh, leaving the hospital, he went to the, their favorite dispensary and he grabbed some flour for his vaporizer. He grabbed some little mints for his wife and she was ecstatic. She had a little mint before dinner like you'd have, you know, a cocktail. He was using his vaporizer on the sidewalk of a trendy area of Seattle. And for me, that was just that was my light bulb. Hmm. You know, I, I, couldn't, right. I couldn't believe how normalized it had been. Um, and I was blown away at the people that were consuming the product. You know, it wasn't your, you know, stoner that kid. stoner, It wasn't yeah, the 18-year-old male, right? Yeah. So, you know, to me, that was kind of a mind-blowing experience. Um, and I, I remember coming home after that, and this is, call it like 
February or March of 2016. I remember coming home and saying to my wife, okay, like something is happening here. I don't know exactly where the opportunity is, but give me six months and we'll figure this out. Right. And so I always kind of think that, you know, in North America, at least you have uh, trendsetters and pop culture that generally starts on a coast, you know, whether you're in Seattle or LA or New York or Miami, you know, generally those, those places set the trends and then it sweeps the nation kind of from coast to interior. And I could see that maybe playing out again uh, in, in cannabis, you know, because I know that people in Vancouver were talking a lot about cannabis. People in Toronto were already doing a lot of deals at that time. Calgary wasn't really focused on it. So, you know, um, I would travel around a lot in 2016 as part of my research uh, on my own dime, just traveling around to conferences, going and meeting co- private companies, going and meeting lawyers and investment bankers, engaging whoever I could just as part of that learning process, really, to figure out where the opportunity for me was going to be. At that time, it was primarily medical. I it mean, was all was, medical. Yeah. yeah. It was all medical with... Um, the, the 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 pledge or promise to legalize the rec market. Right. So the risk was still that we might not get that rec market. And, and no, you know, just digressing here and, and perhaps you know, digressing from finance, but with the U.S. and the experience you had down there with the couple you had dinner with, mm-hmm. they were recreationally using. Yeah. Um, and Washington and, State was legal recreation. Okay. Yeah. So they weren't doing anything out of line. Well, not, yeah, <laughs> not that we should care. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and so that led to, uh, well, it obviously took you down the path. To yeah. Took me down the that. path, really, um, kind of working uh, out of the basement just to learn that industry and traveling around, like I mentioned. Uh, at that time, took an interest into all the publicly traded LPs with my own capital just to get a sense for the stocks and their stories and founders and how they trade and, you know, the market flows and whatnot. Um, and so that was fortunate timing as well, because, you know, if you recall, and I think it was about late 16, that the market really kind of started taking off and people started buying into this story. Um so in all that that traveling and research, I think it became apparent to me that um, it was real. The opportunity was real, and Canada was moving fast from a global context, um, and that there was enough people working on it, uh, but not enough where I felt it was just crowded by any means. Um, the few people working on it gave me a little bit of validation that, okay, this thesis could be correct. Um, right. so, at, you know, after, uh, after all of that studying, I came away with two ideas. The first being a, a specialty investment bank, uh, and the second being like a fund model. So, you know, one sell side, one buy side, uh, I thought that both were needed in the space. Um, and you know, you could have thrown a dart and either one would have worked out, you know, yeah. you know, and in hindsight now both would have worked out. Um, you know, the conversation I had with, with, with Brett Wilson, who's, who's one of our advisors and lead investors, um, was that I had two ideas in the cannabis space. And he said to me, well, okay, interesting. I've done the investment banking thing. So not really interested in that again, but if you're going to do the fun thing, I, you know, I would be interested right. in that. So I'm like, okay, well maybe that's my decision then. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of made for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's when we, um, you know, we started, um, putting pen to paper and figuring out a business plan for that. And by uh, summer, fall of 16, I was engaged in discussions with a family office out of Toronto called York Plains. Uh, York Plains was an old client of mine when I was on the the sales desk at First Energy. 
And lo and behold, they were looking at this model as well. You know, I, I had remembered them back in 13, 14, investing in startup cannabis plays, but it just kind of in one ear or oh, the right. other at the time because I wasn't focused on it. Um, but yeah, lo and behold, they were, were looking to uh, put out a fund as well. And they were a little bit uns- unsure of how large they could get that fund and whether they had a viable business model in it. And so we decided that we should combine forces and, and, and mitigate some of that risk and, and um, you know, lean on each other and, and hopefully get a larger fund out the door. Uh, so that's, that's what we did. In effect, we, we came to terms in late 16 and uh, made a promise that first week of January 17, we were going to press release this and, and, and get everything going. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the business has been... I always use the analogy, you know, this cannabis industry is like drinking out of a fire hose. You know, it's just coming at you so fast. So, um, you know, I think you have to be very decisive and, and, and quick in your decisions. And so we're kind of running our business that way. You know, we want to be very pragmatic about every investment decision or strategic decision we make. However, you know, this is this industry is on like dog years, you know, so yeah. you really have to move fast. So, so with that, I mean, uh, you, the speed at which it changes, speed at which it moves, that first fund you were able to close on. And I, I mean, it's, I think it is typically, uh, in kind of a, a result of the, the world of VC you saw. And it, it would, let me back up. Would you fancy yourself as a VC early stage with the fund or yeah, where yeah. are you now? Definitely when we launched it, we were, we were solidly VC. Um, and now, you know, with the size of fund two, we're rethinking that a little bit and migrating, um, to some later stage deals that might be considered more PE investing, right. private equity investing. Um, you know, the VC community in, uh, is fairly small still in Canada. Um, so there's there's not a lot of opportunities um, to deploy big pools of capital in that VC world. So right. uh, what you'll see from us in Fund 2 is we'll be going into some larger companies with larger checks, later stage opportunities. Uh, but we're still going to have a nice uh, mix of that real early stage VC style right. seed investing. And so, yeah, as far as the, you know, the numbers go, um, you know, you're, you're bang on there. You know, it, it really is in the VC world. It really is a numbers game. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, that was the, the question I was after was you saw 1,200 deals or so. Something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. whether it be, you know, it blew off your desk as a piece of paper or drilled in. Yeah. Or, and how many did you finance? Yeah, we did 13 in the first fund. That's a good number. Yeah. <laughs> like a number. I, I want to drill into that because I think that's a really important aspect of uh, when you're out financing your company. Mm-hmm. That less than one percent, like point zero one percent. What made them different compared to everybody else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not really surprising um, when when you when you look at the numbers because, you, you, like, we all hear the stats about uh, startup businesses and eighty five or ninety percent of them fail after three years, right? Right. So it's not surprising that only one percent uh, would would attract our capital. Um, you know, there's. There's multiple reasons for why it won't work. You know, I'll try to hit on a few of them, maybe. Um, and I'm going to go back to that word, that differentiation, right? Like, 
um, for us in, in this in this business, you know, I'm still trying to lean on my mature industry metrics like a track record and evaluation. Um, but there isn't a lot of track record in this game. You know, most people are just coming into it unless you've been in the black market for the last decade or two, which, uh, <laughs> which there's a lot of some color to it as well. Yeah, right? for sure. We're seeing yeah. a lot of those opportunities too. Um, so then we have to look at the individuals and what they've done in the past and have they had success in the past and, um, are they entrepreneurs and, and can they navigate um, a, a, an industry with a lot of moving parts to it? You know, it's a it's a regulated industry, obviously, and uh, a lot of times the regulations are unclear and uh, the government is still trying to figure them out as they go sometimes. Uh, so you have to be able to do the do the pivot and, um, you know, roll with the punches, so to speak. So. Um, you know, we look for great ideas, great products, technology, services that not a lot of other people in the market might have. Or if there are other people in the market or other competition, you've locked up a big market share. You know, you've locked up good clients and you've got a great brand. All right. Uh, so we always look for best in class management, best in class ideas, services, technologies, that sort of thing. When somebody walks in. You know, all too often, if you're getting pitched, you know, the jargon. Yeah. You know, we're strategically positioned. We are best in class. Yeah. How do you identify that? Or what do you suggest for people to say? Because I'm sure when you hear that, you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, you too? Well, there's a lot of product testing in this business. (laughs) You should see the smile on your face, man. Everyone's going to come here and say, oh, I grow the best stuff or I've got the best oil or the best gummy or the best vaporizer or whatever it is, right? Right. And there's no way that 100 guys could have the best. So my easy, simple answer is, sure, let's see what you got and I'll give it to the people that know, you know, in some cases know a lot more than I do and we'll get back to you. Um, so there's a bit of that too. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of hold people to it, um, to see if the product is, is what they're, they're claiming it is yeah. no. <laughs> part of the due diligence. <laughs> nice due diligence. Yeah. Can we go further than that? Is yeah. how do you, I mean that 1%, it, well, excuse me, less than 1% is a very small. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like some people haven't really thought through their business plan, right? They, you know, what we saw in the early days is, is most people's reaction to a, a legal cannabis market that they wanted to be a part of was like, oh, great. I'm going to get a grow up or great. I'm going to get a dispensary. And that was it. You know, they could, they could go in two ideas deep and there was nothing beyond that. Now as a fund, um, you know, our thesis was to invest in non-cultivation or non-growing opportunities. So we're looking more at um, technology, software technology, or hardware products and technology, distribution, retail, brands, plant science, that sort of thing. So what we really like is when a group comes to us and says, you know, here's what we're working on. Here's where we see the industry going and, and you know, trying to, uh, to use the Wayne Gretzky analogy, you know, go to where you think the puck's going to be, not where it is right now. Right. right. Um, and so go into those, those, those nooks and crannies that not a lot of people are participating in um, with a real unique idea um, that everyone in hindsight is going to say, Oh well, yeah, of course that makes sense. You know, I need to own that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of companies aren't like I appreciate a lot of the passion that we get from some of the entrepreneurs in this industry. You know, for a lot of people, this plant has um, has had a lot of impact on their lives, you know, um, or their family's life. And it's helped them, you know, maybe maybe deal with cancer or or help them with pain management or anxiety. And so you, you get a lot of people that are quite passionate about it. Um, but you have to be able to separate, okay, this is passion and perhaps maybe a hobby versus this is like a viable business. Like you might have the best intentions, but maybe you just haven't really thought through, uh, right. what, you know, what the market really needs with that, that deep thinking, mm-hmm. how should, how, what's the best way to present that thinking, that information? I mean, you could start with an elevator pitch, but there's, mm-hmm. there's more to it than that. What are those pieces? What are those pieces that stood out for you? Was mm-hmm. it a, a a beautiful presentation, a a stand up, just verbal uh, presentation by the the CEO. Was it a, a business plan? You know, what were the, the pieces yeah? That you, you know, there's that. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, you know, the, the the first deal I ever invested in, the first private company in the cannabis space, was a company called Tokyo Smoke, and this was before we had launched the fund. Um, and I was attending a conference in Vancouver and the CEO, um, was on stage and he had come from the tech world. Uh, so he was, he was roaming the stage, very animated and enthusiastic, might've even been dropping a few F-bombs, which, you know, (laughs) risky move. But, um, I was so impressed with, uh, his style and his manner and his story. You know, they were pitching something that, um, no one else was talking about or thinking about, you know, at the time, this is, this is mid 2016, uh, they were running, opening up and, and running coffee shops with cannabis paraphernalia and clothing, branded clothing in them. Uh, and their whole, um, vision was to create a, a brand and a culture for cannabis and around a cafe. So kind of taking that Amsterdam approach to Canada and um, the LPs at the time weren't even doing that because they couldn't. They were restricted with, with advertising. And so here was Tokyo Smoke's vision, really, to create all this, this, this following um, for their products without even selling cannabis. So they weren't even touching the plant. And so I'd go to, to um, Toronto and attend their events, and they were lined up around the block and sold out and, um, you know, tens of thousands of followers on social media and appealing to um, maybe a younger demographic, but a demographic that really is conscious about brands and, and they're loyal, they're evangelical about their brands. And so I thought that was really cool. You know, Mm -hmm. like I had made up my mind within 15 minutes of hearing this guy speak, like this is a company that I could easily put money into just personally, right? It wasn't the due diligence I would do for the fund. Uh, So I grabbed Alan when he was done speaking and I just asked him one question, like, are you raising money? If that's a yes, perfect. I'm writing a check for you. Uh, Wow. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things. And and it turned out to be our first investment in in Green Acre because my partner, Matt, um, was also looking at it at the same time, independently of me. Um, And when we got together, uh, we decided that, you know, this was this made sense for the fund. Um, And it was a bit of a divisive investment for us because um, we had people tell us that, you know, they wanted to give us a bigger check into Green Acre, but they saw our first deal and they said, you know, wait a second, I I, I don't really get what these guys are doing. Um, Hmm. 
and it turned out to be our first exit. You know, we exited the position within about a year, year and a half, and generated about a, a 650% rate of return in that 18-month period. So, you know, it, <laughs> yep. it was it was great. It turned out to be a great investment, um, uh, which which was important not only for Fund One but for us as we start to market Fund Two to have that quick exit. And you know, in fact, we had another exit. Um, but that one was was a very high profile deal for us. So, you know, those are the types of ideas where I go back to that really that unique concept, that unique product. They're thinking about this industry, um, you know, top down from with a different lens than a lot of people are thinking about it. You know, and they were absolutely right. You know, Canopy came came in and bought them, and the day of, of closing, I think the deal was valued at roughly $400 million. So there's a company that went from a $9 million valuation to, you know, 400 at date of closing in two years or, right. or a little bit over right. two years. The numbers are phenomenal there, but what really strikes me in, in what is interesting to me is that charisma of Alan. Right. As, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I want to argue that that can be taught versus just innate in the person, the presenter, yeah. uh, the CEO. And for you to walk up and ha- and just say to them, are you raising money? I'll invest. Yeah. I mean, is is pretty powerful to the way he was presenting. Yeah, absolutely. Would you agree with the statement that emotion trumps logic? Like when you're, when you were there, was he talking numbers or was he talking, was he, was he painting a picture? What he was, was painting a like? picture. Absolutely. Yeah. There was no, there was no valuation discussion or, or anything like yeah. that in yeah. his presentation. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, <laughs> backing me up. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. I, I, I can, I can picture it and I, and I can see that charisma and, I, yeah. and that's something that I say, I, I think is so incredibly important and is that, uh, is often over, uh, overlooked by yeah. CEOs when, when communicating what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, passion really shines through, right, when you have it. I mean, you have to have the, 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 the support of the numbers and the valuation, right? If, if, if he would have, uh, if I would have seen the subagreement and it would have had a 90 million valuation instead of nine, well, okay, I'm not investing now. Yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, that you need that balance. You know, I don't know whether you can teach charisma. You probably can to a certain extent. Um, but I think a lot of that you have or you don't. Okay. Or it comes naturally, you know, for a lot of people. Um, but if you have that passion or charisma and you can really tell that story and you can do it while being grounded with your numbers and your estimates, I think that's a great combination. Right. right. When looking at some of the... The other deals you've done, and this is a, a little bit of a change in, in um, path here, but what are the terms like from the VC side? And, we, and perhaps you can get into more of the private equity side, but what are the terms that you work with that, that you need? And are they, are they different from other traditional VCs? I don't think they're too different, really. You know, like we would, we would look to include um, standard CVCA or NVCA terms like so. So can you yeah Canadian Venture Cap Association okay. or in the U.S. Na- uh, National Venture Cap Association? Um, you, we would look for similar terms and reps and warranties, um, you know, as those deals across industries. Um, so there is a template out there. Okay. Now each deal is a little bit different. Um, and, and there's a lot of factors that that will go into that. Um, 
you know, if it's a very hot deal and there's a lot of investors looking at it, um, then I might not have as much power and, and bargaining strength there. So I might have to take um, less favorable terms, let's say, if I'm the only one at the table um, and I'm writing a large check and I'm going to be a big part of their cap table. Uh, then I can drive harder terms, obviously, yes. right? So there's a bit of a balance there. Um, you know, I would say, like, in the VC world, it's it's more of an art than a science. Um, you know, like, we, we, we always target companies with, um, let's call it a sub-10 or 20 million valuation if it's kind of a startup uh, model. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, going back to my earlier point about estimates and numbers, <laughs> they're barely worth the paper they're printed on. So, yeah. you know, it's really tough to make that, that um, do that, you know, discount of cash flow analysis or something on yeah. these businesses that a lot of times don't even have a product in the market, right? right. When you, you mentioned writing larger checks, being that lead, uh, that can be, you know, that can, that can make a deal, make yeah. a deal happen when you're, you're able to secure that. But how does, how does one go about getting a lead investor? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of different ways, you know, like, are, are you doing it non-brokered? Or are you doing it brokered, right? Um, if you're doing it brokered, then your investment banker should have those those relationships and he'll make those calls or she'll make those calls. So leaning for, from a public side or a pre-public side, leaning on your banking relationships for them to go and find that. That's right. That lead. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you want to uh, just sell that lead effectively, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to do it yourself, non-brokered as a company, then it's a lot more work. You know, like you've got to make those calls. You've got to reach out. And we get, you know, this is where a lot of our deal flow comes from. It's from CEOs reaching out to us, whether they hit us up on our website or, um, you know, meet us through a, a, another mutual friend or, or on LinkedIn. I found a lot of people approaching us on LinkedIn, actually. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can go and kind of cold call and prospect. I would say, you know, as a CEO, if you're in fundraising mode and you're planning on doing it yourself, um, you need to be out there and be visible and be be marketing and, and pay pay attention. Just like uh, as an investor, I'm always paying attention to the companies out there that I don't know yet. I'm, I'm reading and I'm cold calling companies and reaching out to learn more about them. I think as a CEO, you should be doing the same thing. Right. You know, you should be um, paying attention to uh, who the who the financial players are in, in your space and and look at the deals that are getting done and who's funding them. Um, and then try to get contacts there. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky when you're doing it yourself. It's a lot of work and it's yeah. distracting. It's, uh, well, absolutely. And, and in coming in to sit down with you, is it, is it a valid question to say, you like the opportunity, will you be our lead? Um, it's a valid question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there after one meeting, you know? Right. Um, I, I think in the, the VC world, the PE world, <clears throat> they tend to move a little bit slower. You know, the due diligence process isn't two or three days, it's two or three months more. Um, so I would expect that, that, you know, you, you have to get into a longer term relationship with your lead order. Um, Nobody and, wants to uh, on the first date. That's right. <laughs> yeah, let's date for a while before we get married. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's that feeling out process. And, and so that's going to happen over multiple meetings and multiple calls. Um, and, you know, it depends how 
I guess, how forthcoming that investor might be and whether he wants to tip his hand and say, look, we're interested in leading this. Let's work towards that. Or if he wants to kind of drag it out and play hardball and everyone's got their own style. Right. Right. Um, you know, we tend to know right away uh, after either reviewing a, a pitch deck in five minutes or within 15 minutes of a call or a meeting. Um, I could tell you if this is going to be a yay or a nay as far as like, do we do more work on this or is this done? We're, we're not going to spend any time on this. Right. You know, so our filter's gotten a lot more refined after seeing so many deals. You know, the first couple dozen deals, you wanted to give them, you know, enough attention where you, you could un- dig into that segment and understand how they fit into it. Where now I think we have that general understanding of all the, the segments in the industry. We know which ones we want to be in. Who's who in the zoo? Exactly. So a lot of these deals like cultivation, for example, um, it's really not our thing. And especially if you're not even licensed yet, if you're just applying for licenses, that's an easy no. I don't even need to do a call or I don't even need need your pitch deck to tell you that I'm not interested. You must get barraged with requests, uh, pitch decks coming your way, all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. To the extent that you're willing to give it up, what is the best way to approach Greenacre? Referrals are always good, I, and I think that goes for any private investor. When 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 you get a deal come through on one of your referrals uh, or a network, someone that you know and you trust, um, that's the best way. Okay. Um, you know, but I would encourage everyone to to reach out cold as well. You know, right. you, you have to. You simply just have to do it. Um, and those who have reached out cold. Yeah and grabbed your attention, what did they do differently? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, like, um, you can tell when people are engaged or when they're not engaged. Like, if someone sends you um, a short little brief email without a lot of thought to it um, and making assumptions uh, for you, it's a bit of a turnoff. Um, but when you can, you can tell when people have spent the time and they've approached you with a, you know, a specific reason, you know, um, and, and they, they frame the opportunity for you and give you that information, enough information to get you excited and, you know, call it the elevator pitch. Um, you're going to go a lot further, right? Uh, and you can tell when someone's lazy or not, even by yeah. email, you can tell. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, just a, a, engagement in the sense of... Um, you know, are you replying to the email promptly or are you following up as you said you would? You know, give you another example. I, I, I met a, a company in, in Los Angeles a few weeks ago over lunch and um, um, I presumably wanted some information after the meeting and told her that. Um, and it's a month later and there's been no follow up. There's been no email. Thank you for lunch. Here's some more info. Just just. Well, dead air. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I won't spend any more time on that. Yeah. You know, cause no that's, what. that's, a, I need, I have, I know enough now about yeah. the CEO. You, you know what I find is interesting and stepping, stepping back out and, and talking about the deals that come around. I think it's, it's imperative for people to respect that you guys have built a bit of an ecosystem around everything you're doing there and identifying those, those, uh, you know, those areas where you focus and, and keep in. Um, 
how can people start to find, you know, find the information on the deals you've been a part of and what's, you know, what's keeping you interested? Because it, it's such an evolving mm-hmm. uh, space now. Yeah. Um, it's important to understand how you guys view that ecosystem and where you're, where you're putting your interest. But as it continues to evolve, how can they keep up to speed? Yeah. Um, well, we, we do post most of our transactions on the website. Um, so you can see our portfolio on there and we will press release when we do a deal. Uh, and we generally talk about why we like the company or the space that they're in, you know, so there is information out there in the public domain. Um, we do have to be a bit careful, um, just given we're in an industry that is still federally illegal in the U S so we want to be a little bit careful about kind of what we're doing and where we're participating. Um, so, you know, we're not as forthcoming as, as we would be in, in other industries, perhaps. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think that the website and, and our social media is probably the best way to learn. Picking yep. up the phone works, too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is true? Yeah. 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 Okay. And uh, what are the spaces you're most interested in? And, you know, to, to the Gretzky analogy of where's the pup going? What, what are you most interested in? Yeah. Um, so we are, we are interested in the hemp and the CBD space. We haven't made an investment there yet. CBD is obviously getting a lot of attention. Um, so we think there's an angle there. It won't be, um, investing in a hemp farm or anything, but maybe it's on the processing side or the, the finished goods side. Um, so we'll look for something there. Uh, we still like that distribution space. We have a, we have a great uh, horse in, in uh, Fund 1 that we'll put in Fund 2 as well in the, in the distribution space. Um, and it's fairly fragmented, and they're emerging as one of North America's kind of leaders in that space. So we think we could almost have kind of a, like a, a roll-up strategy there. Um, so we're looking for more exposure and distribution. We like retail, uh, so we have exposure here in Alberta. Uh, we have exposure in the U.S. as well. Um, as uh, we're looking for exposure in Ontario uh, now that they're coming online. Um, you know, hardware is interesting for us. We do own a hardware uh, manufacturer, so think about like vaporizers, vape pens, that sort of thing. Uh, vape pens will be a huge part of the market uh, when they when it becomes legal in Canada. So edibles, concentrates, vape pens, those sort of things are one year uh, past legalization or after legalization. So in the next, um, call it 10 months, we should see uh, those on the market. Okay. So that's interesting. Um, you know, I think the... Um, uh, the market is going away from straight flour consumption, so joints are kind of not not as cool as they used to be. Nineteen ninety nine, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So nineteen ninety nine. So um, you know, we like the concentrates. We think there's great plays there. Um, we like we do like edibles. Um, I'm looking at a really interesting um, uh, beverage play right now. Um, it's in the it's in the non alcoholic craft beer space. Uh, it's led by uh, a gentleman that um, started the and, and essentially built the largest brand of craft beer in America, and now he's jumped over to do cannabis. So that's really exciting. So you talk no, about a, you talk about a track record of execution. Yeah. Um, you know he grew this label to a billion dollars in sales before his retirement. So that's really exciting. So we're wow. gonna get in on, on on the ground floor with him. Um, and then I'd go back to that um, plant science. You know, uh, you want to talk about kind of the, the future. Well, you know, that's where it is, right? It's it's in the science and 
kind of the, the uh, technology of, of that's right. What is this plant really capable of when we um, when we apply some some uh, money and really brilliant minds to it? Um, you think about all the other crops out there, and you think about the work that say a Monsanto or Syngenta have done on the genetic side and the tissue culturing and whatnot. None of that work's been done on cannabis yet, right? Because it's been illegal. So we've now got PhDs in their fields jumping over to work on this plant. So it's interesting to see what they're going to come up with and um, you know how that could change the, the cultivation game, really. Uh, we, we kind of view cannabis as an ingredient going forward. You know, it's uh, the THC or CBD or some of the more rare cannabinoids are are going to be extracted from that plant and they're going to be put in a, in a different delivery format, you know, whether that's a gel cap or a tincture or a, a topical lotion or patch or uh, inhale. People are working on inhalers, um, you know, the vape pens that I already talked about, the edibles, uh, you know, there's there's so many different ways to administer this uh, this plant, um, some would call it medicine, right? Um, so that's the exciting thing for us too, is, is where do we, you know, the, the days of, of smoking joint and, you know, behind the house or in the back alley or never know, I, I think they're coming to a, <laughs> coming to an end, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. And as a final question for anyone out there raising money, whether it be pre-public, public, or just in general, uh, what what would you leave them with? Um, I, I would say just like knowing your stuff, you know, like get, like do the research both, um, you know, your own business, the segment that you're in, and then the people that you're talking to, you know, uh, come come in with a with a clear ask. Uh, don't come in with a bunch of questions and looking for something. Um, don't come in without having a firm grasp on what you're valuing, valuing this opportunity at and, and have confidence in that number. You know, like one of, another real turnoff is someone that comes in and says, oh, well, you know, we're, we're looking to raise money, $5 million out of $50 million valuation. But, you know, if you really like it, we, we could talk, you know, a, a better valuation for you. Well, you know that's a really weak position. That's not what I'm looking for in, in a in a leader, right? Um, so you know, have your story straight. I would guess be prepared, um, and and you know, just know your market. You know, I, I think a lot of times where entrepreneurs fall down is is they, um, you know, they they put their head down and they're passionate about something and they're not really kind of um, seeing the rest of the world around them and and how this idea fits in, like does the world really need this idea? You know, is this, are you trying to create a category or is this a category that exists and you're just going to do it better? You know, these are important questions that I think you have to be, um, you have to be asking like, where's your, where's your value add in, in the whole system. Right. Right. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think, uh, let's leave it at that informative. Right. It's, it's a bit of an inside scoop, and uh, I hope we can dig down uh, again sometime and dig in more. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Corey. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. All right. Appreciate it, bud. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. 
You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.